Well, how many of you remember back in the summer of 1992? Anybody? It was the Summer Olympics in Barcelona. And the United States Basketball Association had one goal and one goal only, to bring home the gold medal. You see, over the years, the game of basketball that was created in the United States, at least we claim it was, created by James Naismith, you see, other countries had been sending teams that were made up of professionals, people that were paid players, while we would send our, our college athletes. But that was catching up, and we hadn't won gold in a while. So it was time to bring home the gold, and so we sent the dream team. The dream team made up of the NBA's superstars. Let me just read the roster real quickly. Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, Clyde Drexler, Patrick Ewing, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Christian Leitner, Carl Malone, Chris Mullen, Scottie Pippen, David Robinson, John Stockton. Wow. Even if you don't know anything about basketball, that was a loaded team. That was a loaded team. Christian Leitner was the only college player. He was like number tw the 12th option, right? It's incredible. They played eight games, and they lost, they beat uh, their opponents by no less than 32 points in each game, and that was against Croatia in the gold medal round. Wasn't necessarily a great display of humility or sportsmanship or even diplomacy by the U.S., but it darn sure demonstrated, you know, that they were going to dominate that. Mission was accomplished. We brought home the gold, if you will. Jesus himself had a dream team. But made up, perhaps, of some people that we wouldn't expect. You see, Jesus did have an objective. He did have an objective to bring salvation to men and women who are alienated from the living God. An objective to bring the kingdom of God into their hearts and to bring this good news to the entire world. To change all of history, to change all of eternity, if you will. But the team he chose would be contrary, perhaps, to the people that our world would choose. Jesus was always doing things differently than how we would think. And the truth of the matter, if we're honest, even as followers of Jesus, we probably wouldn't choose some of the people that Jesus chose. But we're going to take a look at this dream team, if you will, and see what Jesus was going to do in them before he could do something through them. We're getting to the part in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus chooses his 12 apostles. And so if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack them open to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Some might call them the dream team, some might call them a nightmare at times. But this is the roster that Jesus chose. Pick it up at verse 12. 
One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when the morning came, he called his disciples to them and chose 12 of them, whom he designated as apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Tell you what, let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and look at some of these men. So Lord Jesus, oftentimes you do things in such contrarian ways. But oftentimes, because you want to be glorified in doing something different than what we see. So Lord, as we look at a few of, of these apostles today, would you give us eyes to see what you did in their lives and eyes to see what you want, us, what you want to do in our lives as well. So open the eyes of our heart. We might be open to what you want to do in us and through us. Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So if you've been with us, we're in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has started his public ministry. He's on the radar screen of the religious experts. They don't always like what he's doing, especially when it comes to saying that he, as the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins, that he, as the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. But now he calls some men to follow him. Now, he's already called some to follow. We've seen so far Peter, James, John, Levi, who's also named Matthew, and some others. But it was really not full-time. It really wasn't uh, a full cadre of people. There was not an established group, established team. So now he calls 12 to be with him all the time, to be his apostles. Apostle means sent one. They were going to represent Jesus. They were going to represent His message, represent His authority, and bring this message ultimately to the world. Now, I'm going to fall on my own sword right now because uh, in my excitement to get this message out to you, I'm working through this material last night. I go, there's no way I'm going to get all 12 names out today. It's not going to happen. Otherwise, you're just going to get glazed over like, oh, I can't take it all in. I'm drinking from a fire hose. So we're going to come back to this next week. But I'm going to cover the first four today. So I want to put out some broad strokes about these men to begin with, first of all. Save for one, they are all from the northern district of Galilee. Up north by the Sea of Galilee. Now, in the first century, you have to understand that this was considered kind of the backwoods, backwards area of Judea. The main area was near Jerusalem, in Judea itself. That's where the, you know, the hub of religious activity was happening. These people were pretty much considered country bumpkins. This is where all the, the terrorists, the, the extremists came from, up in Galilee. Number two, none of these men were priests, rabbis, scribes, or Pharisees. None of them were the established religious folks. They were all just 
regular guys. The occupations we do know that they had were fishermen and a tax collector. We don't know what the others did. They were not powerful. They were not influential. They were not great scholars. They were not great writers. They were not hugely successful in the eyes of this world. And they could be spiritually clueless. Jesus could do something very obvious, and they don't get it. At moments where they see Jesus do amazing things, the next moment they're filled with fear. They have no faith in who Jesus is. And they're bigoted. At moments where others are, are forwarding Jesus' kingdom, they want to they cut them off because they're not part of the club. They're self-promoting. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Jockeying for position. One would deny Jesus. One would betray Him. All would desert Him. And all would fail. There's one other thing I want to point out before we kind of get into the names themselves. In this, this narrative, Jesus went up to pray all night on the mountain. To pray up, pray all night on the mountain. One kind of side note, right? It just shows the importance of prayer for any ministry. The importance of prayer for any ministry. I will just ask you, any, any of you who are involved in ministry, if the effectiveness of the ministry you're involved with is contingent upon your prayer life, what would the result be? And I'm not throwing that out there to be snarky and kind of nasty about that. All that I'm saying is that so often we as Americans are doers and what we can do ourselves rather than looking to the Lord God who wants to do something in us and through us. How often are we plugging into the power of prayer and looking to our Heavenly Father? But here's the thing. I'm pretty sure it didn't take Jesus all night to figure out who were going to be his, his 12 guys. I think he, he probably had that pretty well established there. I think he was up all night praying for them. Praying for them because he knew who they were. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their strengths. He knew who they were. And he knew their human foibles. And as we'll see a little bit later, Jesus prays specifically for one of his disciples who he knows is going to deny him. He was up all night praying for them. They might be sustained. And what was Jesus' method of training? It wasn't going to school every day and doing Bible study as, as important as the Scripture was. No, they were with Him 24-7, walking with Him, doing the ministry, watching Jesus do the ministry, seeing what He did, and then being sent out to do the ministry. It was the peripatetic school of ministry. He was, they were walking with Jesus every day, 24-7, seeing what His life was like. In fact, Matthew says this, as he, as he called the, and appointed the twelve disciples, designating them as apostles, that they might be with him. That was the major influence. Jesus was having a huge impact, making an indelible mark on their lives. In fact, there's a 
modern-day scholar named Robert Coleman, who's written a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. How was Jesus going to get this message out? He was going to invest himself in these men. Be with them. Invest in their lives. And when he would leave, they would have an impact. I think the main purpose, though, in choosing these men, these what I'd call non-superstars, if you will, is that it might be truly obvious that God is the one at work in them and through them. The Apostle Paul says this in addressing the Corinthians. He says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God wanted to show His power in and through these men. Men who are just ordinary guys. But he chose each one. He knew them each. And he wanted to shape them and work in them and through them. So as we head into these first four, it's actually two sets of brothers. Two sets of brothers. And the first is, shouldn't be any surprise to us. His name is Simon who Jesus will call Peter the Rock. And I call him the first among equals. He was a fisherman from, from Bethsaida, and then he moved his business just down the road to Capernaum. And Jesus reaches into his life and calls him to be a fisher of men. He's the one whom we have the most information about and in every list in the Scripture, when you have a list of the disciples, he is always first. The reality is he became the leader, the spokesman for the disciples. And for better or for worse, he was always putting himself out there. He was the one who was willing to put himself out there. Whether it was his confession, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. Or even it was his bold rebuke of Jesus. No, Lord, that will never happen to you. And then receiving, Satan, get out of my way. That's what happens when you're bold. Sometimes when you make broad strokes, you get a broad rebuke. But there was a moment in the ministry, and you, we can read about it in John 6, where Multiple people were following Jesus. It was a very popular thing. And then Jesus preaches his sermon about, if you want to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he, can, he confronts people. says, the reason you're following me is because I've given you bread. And some people don't like what Jesus is saying. And so they stop following him. And he says to Peter and the twelve, are you going to stop following me? And he says, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of life, and we believe that you are the Holy One of God. Again, Peter was the one who was willing to make those broad strokes, those deep commitments. He was a part of the inner circle. Himself, James, and James' brother John. 
They were the ones who were there when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, saw His glory. Again, He opened up His mouth when He probably shouldn't have. But He was there. He was there when Jesus was agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Unfortunately, because of his privileged position, it probably made him all too prone also to be willing to argue about who was the greatest disciple. Got a little proud there. And he was prone to extremes. Prone to extremes. Again, in John 13, as Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, demonstrating his servitude, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You'll never wash my feet. Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. Okay, fine. Then not just my feet, my head, my hands. No, Peter, you're already clean. You just need your feet washed. He was the one who says, Lord, even even if I have to go to death with you, I will never deny you. But Jesus does know that he will deny him. And he tells him in, in Luke's account, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, all of you, as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, that when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You're going to fail. But when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. See, Peter had that effect on the rest of the disciples. Oftentimes, as what Peter did, everyone else followed. And after Peter does deny Jesus, I don't know the man. He calls on heaven to witness it. And weeps bitterly. And sees the resurrected Jesus. And goes back to fishing. Jesus has to restore him. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Three times he's asked. In order that he might be restored. And he was. And Peter is emboldened, again, to be that leader. In fact, he is a spokesman at Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes down. And when he preaches, 3,000 people come and put their faith in Christ. And he is the one who goes to the Gentiles, to Cornelius, and preaches the gospel to them for the very first time. You know, it's, it's easy to think that Peter has arrived after the resurrection, after Pentecost. But he drops the ball again. See, he goes up to Antioch. And he's fellowshipping with these new brothers and sisters in Christ. Some are not Jewish. But then there's a contingency from Jerusalem who comes who are Jewish and says, Hey, 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 wait a minute. What are you hanging out with these uncircumcised Gentiles? And Peter becomes insincere. He separates himself. Well, well, maybe you're not as holy as we are. And Paul talks about this in his, his 
letter to the Galatians. He says, hey, I had to confront Peter, the rock, face to face. What are you doing? You who are a Jew who don't live by the law, we're convinced that we are saved by grace through faith. What are you doing? And Peter could have said, hey, hey, Paul. Yeah, I was here before you were. I'm the rock, but he doesn't respond like that. He says, man, you're right. You're right. And he humbles himself. He's humble enough to receive this rebuke from Paul. And the, at the end, he is not this proud dictator. No, he is a humble shepherd. And if ever I look to any passage about leadership, it's always First Peter 5. And this is what he'll say in just a few verses here. He says, Be shepherds of God's flock, that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You see that Peter who was out there, he became humble like his master. Church history says eventually he leaves Jerusalem. He actually goes on the road and ends up in Rome. He's the head pastor there for a, a season. But that's where he'll meet his demise. Peter was a married man. His wife also a follower of Jesus Christ. And Nero, the emperor, thought he would get to Peter by putting his wife on the cross. And even at that moment, he's saying, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And then Peter himself will ultimately be put on the cross, upside down, because he does not consider himself worthy to die the same death as his Lord. But let me ask you a question. Are you a Peter are you a person that sometimes gets out there, gets ahead of things? God wants to use you. And yes, you may fail famously along the way. But God wants to do things in you. He can handle that failure and He can continue to use you. God uses all sorts. Even people who get ahead of Him at times. The next character... Is his brother Andrew. Like I said, this is this two sets of brothers. I call him the apostle of small beginnings. He's also a fisherman. He was a follower of John the Baptist. And when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew leaves John to go follow Jesus. He wants to follow the Messiah. But if Peter is out front and in center stage... Andrew is one behind the scenes. As a follower of Jesus, of John, and then to Jesus, he comes to Peter and says, Hey, we have found the Messiah. And he brings Peter to, to Jesus. He's the one who introduces Peter to Jesus. And then, in a moment of crisis, if you will, of food, 
There are 5,000 people that need to be fed. No one knows what to do. Philip says, hey, a half year's wages won't feed this, this crew. And Andrew says, sees this boy with five loaves and two fish. says, Lord, here's this. Here's what this boy has to offer. See, Andrew doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. But he does know that Jesus can do something in him and through him. And if you know the account, Jesus feeds this entire crowd of 5,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish. See, Peter's, I mean, Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. Last of all, Philip, in, in John chapter 12, there are a group of Greek proselytes who come to Philip who want to meet Jesus. Well, Philip's not sure, so he, he goes to Andrew because he knows he's going to take him to Jesus. And Jesus shares the gospel with them in essence. You see, if you're a person that never wants to be in the limelight, never wants to be the center of attention, it's not in your wiring, but you're good at inviting people personally to meet Jesus. Maybe you're an Andrew. Anyone ever heard of Ed Kimball? Anyone know who Ed is? Probably wouldn't. Ed Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in Chicago. And there was this student of his named Dwight who came to Sunday school. Dwight just seemed clueless. He just was floundering. He worked at a shoe store. He was really concerned. So Ed went down to the shoe store to, to share Jesus with Dwight because he was concerned that he had no idea. And so he went to the back stockroom and shared the gospel with him. And if you read the account of what Ed said, he said, I, I felt like I was just stumbling over my words, but he was determined to share the gospel with him. And he left, and Dwight Lyman Moody had put his faith in Jesus Christ. And you see, the repercussions were exponential. Because later on, God would raise Dwight Lyman Moody up to be a famous evangelist. He would go tour England and run into a man named F.B. Meyer. A man who becomes captivated by the fact that Moody is putting the gospel out. He invites Meyer back to the United States who has an impact on a man named Wilbur Chapman. And Wilbur Chapman has an impact on a man named Billy Sunday who is a famous evangelist who was a, a baseball player. And Billy Sunday has an impact on a man named Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham is an evangelist and he's preaching. He's saying, God, we need a new Pentecost. And he's praying and he goes to North Carolina and he preaches. And a young Billy Graham puts his faith in Jesus Christ. All because Ed Kimball was faithful with bringing young Dwight to Jesus. And maybe you won't have those connections with those people that influence thousands. But think about this. If you just lead one person to Christ, and then they turn around and lead a person to Christ, and then they turn around and lead someone to Christ, think about the exponential impact that has upon the world. Some of you are called to be Andrews. You don't like to be in the limelight. You don't like to be out there. 
but you're really good at introducing people to Jesus personally. Let the Lord shine through you. So tradition has it that Andrew went to Scythia, which is now Russia, as well as Scotland. Both of those nations consider Andrew their patron saint. But he eventually meets his demise in southern Greece, actually, as he led a prominent Roman woman to faith in Christ. Apparently her father or her husband didn't like it. And so Andrew was lashed to an X cross, like this, his body lashed by ropes. And for the next two days, Andrew preached the gospel to those coming by. Come, follow Jesus. Come and die for Him that you might find your life. Some of us are called to be Andrews. The next apostle on the list is the second set of brothers. A man named James, the apostle of passion, I call him. He's brother of John, son of a man named Zebedee, who has a fishing establishment and partners with Peter and Andrew. His name appears first because he's probably the older of the two brothers. He's part of the inner circle. He sees the transfiguration, the raising of Jairus' daughter. And he is a fireball. He's competitive. And he doesn't mind arguing about who the greatest disciple is himself. He's fiery, too. You see, in Luke, we're going to get to chapter 9 here. And Jesus and the disciples are going to go through Samaria. But Jesus has made it plain that he's going to Jerusalem. And the Samaritans don't like it so much. And so they decide to snub Jesus, to not show him any hospitality at all. So James and John, called the sons of thunder, says, Lord, should we call down fire upon them? Now, you know, I don't know what they were thinking, but I think this is more about James and John than it was about Jesus. What? You talk about my Savior that way? We're bringing the fire. Yeah, then you'll know. But you know what? Jesus' mission was not about judgment. It was about reconciling and restoring and bringing right relationship with the living God. And Jesus rebukes them. Again, he was a man of fire. He was ambitious. And even as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, him and his brother John come to Jesus and says, Jesus, we want you to do for us what, whatever we ask. Well, what is it? Well, when you come into your kingdom, we want to sit at your right and your left. You guys don't know what you're asking. Are you going to be able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Oh, yeah, no problem. No. Again, remember, Jesus is going to his death. Because you will. But the place you're asking for me is not my place to give. It's from my Heavenly Father. But all this position-seeking is 
tempered as Jesus will then wash their feet, show himself the servant of all. Indeed, after Jesus is raised, after Pentecost 14 years later, James will taste the passion of the Lord Jesus as he is the first apostle to die for his name. He has his head cut off by a sword by Herod. And tradition has that the church father Clement says that as he was going, the man who was leading him to his execution place was also a believer, asked his forgiveness, also confessed Christ, and they died together. And he kissed him and says, Peace be with you. You see, James had been transformed from a man of passion and judgment, being passion for seeing people put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be reconciled to Him. The last apostle we're going to talk about today is John, the apostle of love. James's brother, son of Zebedee, a follower of John the Baptist. In fact, he's the one who brings James to Jesus. He was also a fisherman. He was in the inner circle of Jesus as well. And he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And oftentimes there's a stereotype that he's this doughy-eyed kind of soft guy. But remember, he's the second son of thunder. He's a fiery guy, and he's willing to call down fire. He's also ambitious, wants to be the greatest. But he was a hard-line truth guy. For John, things were black and white, right and wrong, darkness and light. And if you look in his Gospels and you look in his epistles, he mentions truth 45 times. In fact, he says this in his third epistle, chapter 3, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. But he also came to know that truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is just mere sentimentality. He was concerned about false teaching in his end days. That some were proclaiming that Jesus had not come in the flesh. But also he was concerned that the love of Christ needed to manifest itself in his followers. It was evidence. People will know that you are my disciples and that you have love for one another. And so he looked again to his master who was full of grace and full of truth. He'll pen these words in his first epistle. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Again, had that balance of being a truth guy, and became balanced with the love component. He lived the longest of all the apostles. In fact, he's the only one who doesn't die a martyr's death, per se. Eventually, he goes to Ephesus, becomes the pastor there, where Paul planted the church. But then he gets in trouble with a a Roman general and is exiled to Patmos. 
where Jesus reveals his revelation to him about what the end times are going to look like. Eventually he does return back to Ephesus as an old man, broken, fragile, and frail. But even in those days, as he wrote, he calls this church now about 89 A.D., he says that you are my beloved children. Because he was the apostle of love. We need people like John. People that are fiery about the truth. But we need them to be tempered by the love of Christ. And the gospel. And understanding that we all have the need for Jesus. We need to be humbly influenced by that. You see, the truth without love saves nobody. If it were just the truth, then we would have just had the Old Testament law. We needed love incarnate to come. And so this is what he would pen in his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. A balance of truth and love. We're going to stop there today. But I hope you're encouraged. Encouraged in seeing some of the flaws in these men to know that God would turn around and use them mightily. Because folks, if you have a relationship with Jesus, God wants to use you. Whether you're in put in any book, any day, or you're nameless through history, God knows you. And He sees you. And He wants to use you. And that's what we're going to talk about next week as we continue through the dream team here. Let me pray. And then... Uh, will be dismissed. Lord, you're good. You are amazing. And that you take the weak things of this world to shame the strong. The foolish things to shame the wise in order that you might get the glory and that you might show yourself mighty. Indeed, if you had chosen, Lord Jesus, talented, gifted men, our temptation might be to worship them. But rather we worship you. A God who can come and take flawed men and women and use them mightily to build your kingdom. And we thank you for that. We pray that you'll make us faithful with this gospel message, this good news that can change hearts and change lives for now and for eternity. And Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. God bless as you go, and you are dismissed.